altar of our praise, let there be no higher name in our hearts, in our lives, in our church. Let there be no higher name than the name of Jesus Christ. Good morning, church. You're welcome to grab a seat. This truth that we've just been singing here for the past few moments is exactly what we saw together in our time in God's word last week, that Jesus, the sinless son of God, laid down his life, and that because of that, I can confess my sins, be forgiven of my sins, and have relationship with God Almighty. Praise God. Well, please grab your Bibles, open up to the book of 1 John going to be in 1 John. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the seat in front of you, and you can open up to page 1021. As you're turning to 1 John, uh, I wanted to begin this morning with an ancient story that goes all the way back to when I was in high school. Uh, now, I need to tell you as we begin this story that when I was in high school, I was a bit of a scoundrel, and uh, I liked practical jokes, I liked pranks, and I liked doing them often. My brother, he's 14 months older than I am. We're still very, very close. We talk almost every day. Uh, he had a girlfriend back in high school, and she was often the recipient of my passion for practical jokes. Uh, so let me share with you the very best time that we got her, okay? Uh, so they would oftentimes be hanging out together. I would be off with my friends. And so here's what we did. We, we began by grabbing a hole punch and getting a bunch of hanging chads. That's what those little punched out circles are called. Uh, and then what we did is we took them and we dumped them all into her defrost vent. We turned the controls all the way up so that as soon as the car, you get it, okay? Uh, then after that, we pulled her emergency brake up. Then we got out of the car, spread peanut butter on the underside of her door handle, and then to tie it all together, we wrapped it up with saran wrap, okay? Now, she would oftentimes leave in a hurry, and this was one of those particular times that she was quickly rushing out, which made it all the better, uh, so she comes storming out. We're kind of snickering in the driveway, laughing, enjoying this whole moment of glory. And uh, as we are, she like coerces us to undo the saran wrap, which we were glad to do because she didn't know that was just the beginning of it. So we get the saran wrap off. She grabs underneath the door handle, peanut butter everywhere, mission accomplished. It's good, right? She gets in. She turns the car on, and it is Christmas morning in the front of that car, like little white things going everywhere. And then... She's all riled up, she's frustrated at this point, and so she attempts to speed off in a hurry with the emergency brake engaged. I'm talking front wheels spinning out of control, the back of the car just dragging behind her. It was a glorious, glorious moment. Uh, let me be perfectly clear, this is not an exhortation to go and do likewise. But this picture, I think, is helpful. You see, living the Christian life without being fully confident and sure of our salvation and standing as God's children is kind of like trying to drive with the emergency brake engaged. We're always feeling restrained. We're always feeling held back. We're never quite confident. We're never quite sure. And we always feel like there's something that's pulling us back. We're unable to pursue after the Lord and his glory and the advancement of his gospel without complete confidence and surety. So the first question that we wanted to ask in this series as we began in 1 John, is relationship with God even possible? 
Last week, we answered that question with an emphatic yes, and praise be to God through our Savior, Jesus Christ. My salvation, your salvation, our relationship with God is not ultimately founded on what you or I do. It is ultimately founded upon what God has done in Christ. This morning, we're going to turn a bit of a corner in our series, and we're going to begin to respond to our second question. Since relationship with God is possible, then the question is, do I, do you have relationship with God? And if so, how do we know? As we began the series, I argued that God wants his children to be sure of their salvation, that God wants us to have confidence in knowing that we belong to him. I argued this was the very purpose for which John wrote this letter. 1 John 5, 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. God wants you to know. If in fact you do have eternal life, then God wants you to know that. So how exactly do we begin to tell if we are no longer dead in our sins and our trespasses, but we have been made alive in Christ Jesus? That's the question we're looking at. And to do so, it's not too dissimilar to the way that we tell if we're actually physically alive. Uh, So this morning, uh, if you would please humor me, everybody take a deep breath in. And exhale, are you breathing? Is the person next to you breathing? If they're not, please raise your hand. We'll have the medical team come over quickly, okay? Uh, Do this, take your right hand, place it on your heart. It's beating, that's good. That means you're alive. Uh, Last one, take two fingers, put them just underneath your neck, under your chin here. You feel a pulse. All of these are signs of life. We know that we're living because of these observable indicators that demonstrate the fact that we are actually alive. We look and we observe and we see if we're actually living. And this is exactly what John does for us in 1 John. So as we step into these next three weeks to answer the question, do I actually have a relationship with the Lord? That's what we're going to be talking about, observable signs in our lives that demonstrate that we have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. Now as we do that, we have to keep two truths on the forefront of our minds. We have to discipline ourselves to keep two realities right in front of us and to do so and to help us, I put them on the top of our notes and you'll see them the next three weeks. Truth number one, The claim to eternal life is founded on the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. The claim to eternal life is founded upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. Second truth, the claim to eternal life is substantiated by external evidence. The claim to eternal life is substantiated by external evidence. Now this is critical. There's a huge difference between the words founded and substantiated. Eternal life is established by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, period. But eternal life is evident in the way in which we live our lives. Established in Christ, evident in our lives. 
So these next three weeks, as we're looking at these signs that John gives us here in 1 John, uh, we have to discipline ourselves to go back to the truths that we looked at last week. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you, go back, listen to it, look at the truths again in 1 John chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, because we have to keep these truths, this reality, on the forefront. It is all by grace, through faith, in Jesus. It is not a result of work so that no one may boast and so that only God gets the glory. So 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. And we'll read through 2, 6, which is our passage for today. God's word says this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message that we have heard from him, and we proclaim also to you. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness... We lie, do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So Father, as we come now to hear from your word, I pray that you would speak to us, Holy Spirit of God, that you would take these truths and that you would impress them upon our souls and that because of them, we would be radically transformed. Oh God, we do not just pray these things because that's what you're supposed to pray before you preach. We pray them, Father, because we desperately want to be more like you and to bring much glory to your name. So Father, please, would you help? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Chapter 2, verse 3, we see for the first time this phrase that John uses, by this we know. By this we know. This is a phrase that John is going to use many times throughout the remainder of the book. What he's saying is here are some signs of spiritual life in the individual. He's saying here's how you can check the heartbeat of your soul. Here's how you can tell if your inner man is breathing. Here's how you can check your spiritual pulse. I believe he's going to lay out three different tests that we can run to to determine if we have in fact passed out of death and into eternal life. 
This is the way that John proceeds to answer our question, how do I know I have relationship with God? Each of these tests that we're going to see here over the next three weeks contributes a part to the whole. No test in and of itself is comprehensive, but together as they add up, it puts together a diagnostic package to tell whether or not we have eternal life. Now, these tests that we're going to look at, uh, they're not like academic tests. They're more like medical tests. Nobody likes either of those. I get it. Uh, But an academic test, it's like perform, right? I put the sheet down in front of you. You perform, and you achieve the grade that you earn. With a medical test, it's a bit different. You get your blood pressure tested, and it just observes something that's either true or not true of you. Either you have high or low blood pressure, or you're fine. Uh, Same thing when you're getting tested for any illness, for cancer, for anything. Uh, You're not doing anything in that test to perform or to achieve. Rather, it's simply observing, it's testing to see if there is something in you that can be demonstrated physically, that can be demonstrated in life. So the tests that John gives us here in 1 John are to help us observe if in fact something is true about us. They're offered so that we might diagnose our spiritual condition. So here's John's first test. It's in verse three. By this we know that we have eternal life if we keep God's commandments. Children of God keep God's commandments. Those who have passed out of death and into life keep God's commandments. Those who have eternal life keep God's commandments. He continues in verse four. He says, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. John is so bold. He says, see, look, it's one thing to say I know him. It's an entirely different thing altogether to actually know him. To know Jesus is not to simply know facts about him. It's not only a head knowledge. And when we say that, we don't discount the head knowledge because we cannot love that which we do not know. The head knowledge is crucial and critical, but the head knowledge is not the end in and of itself. The head knowledge exists to drive us to know who the Lord is more so that our relationship with the Lord might increase and so that we might grow in loving and trusting and enjoying the Lord. It leads to a real intimacy with Jesus, a relationship with him both now and for eternity. The kind of knowledge that John is talking about here is a knowledge like a relationship kind of knowledge. So when he says that those who keep God's commandments are those who really have relationship with him, what commandments is he talking about? And then what does it mean to keep those commandments? I think the rest of the passage, the context here, gives us some clues as to what commandments he's referring to. In verse five, he makes keeping his commandments synonymous with keeping his word. And then in verse six, he gives us a picture to go along. Keeping his commandments is walking in the same way in which Jesus walked. This means that God's word and specifically Jesus's life give us a pattern and an example of what it means to keep God's commandments. That in this book that we have sitting open on our laps is the revelation of God where he has described to us that which is good and right and pleasing and acceptable and just before him. Here he has revealed to our sinful hearts that which is sinful and rebellious and that which is righteous 
and submissive. So when John is talking about keeping the commandments of God, he's not talking about the Old Testament laws, the Mosaic Covenant with the more than 600 specific commands. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, 17 says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. So the Old Testament, the Mosaic law, has been fulfilled completely in Christ. If not that, then what commandments is John talking about? I think Jesus helps us most here, as he often does. Uh, In Matthew chapter 22, he's asked, good teacher, what is the greatest commandment? He responds by saying this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. What Jesus is saying is the commandments of God can be set into two main categories, love God and love others. This is what it means to keep God's commandments. Now, Jesus gives us these broad general categories, and then the rest of scripture begins to fill those out and get more specific. Paul is most explicit in the New Testament when it comes to living in accordance with the commandments of God. Paul begins by saying, here's what it doesn't look like to follow or to keep God's commandments. Colossians 3, 5 through 8. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked. Notice the connection when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Paul says, look, here's an example of what it does not look like to walk as Jesus walked. Here's an example of what it looks like to not keep the commandments of God. But then let me help you. Let me show you what it means then to keep his commandments. Colossians 3, 12 continues. He says, but put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He says, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, and bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive And then he ties it back to Matthew 22 here. He says, and above all of these, put on love, which binds together everything in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. You see, in order to keep the commandments of God, I have to first know the commandments of God. This list here in Colossians is one of many lists that we see in the New Testament, of one of many lists and descriptions of what we see throughout the scriptures, and it gives a representation of the clarity in which God has told us what it means to obey and to know his commands. And then to keep God's commands is far more than simply knowing them and being able to rattle them off as if I memorized Colossians 3 and now all of a sudden I do Colossians 3. To keep God's commandments, it means to treasure them. It's like we found a beautiful, precious, glorious treasure, and so I guard it, I keep it. I do all within my power by the grace of God at work in me to keep God's commandments. 
I believe that they are rules and commandments that have been given to me by a gracious father who loves me deeply and wants me as his child to enjoy the life that he has given. And so, what do we do? We come often to God's word. We come often to these pages and we remind ourselves of who he's called us to be. We come often to these pages and we're reminded often of what he's called us to do. We read through the gospels and we're reminded of the life of Jesus Christ and all that he did and all that he lived and how he walked and then we begin by God's grace to emulate his life. Keeping the commandments of God is not a condition of knowing God, but it is a clear sign and indication that we do know God. Keeping the commandments of God is not a condition to know him. It is a clear sign and indication that we do, in fact, know him. Now, you may be sitting there this morning in light of this conversation and thinking to yourself, if that's really the case, then I'm out. (laughs) Because there is no way that I can have eternal life. If a clear sign and indication of eternal life is keeping the commandments of God, I fail every time, every day at multiple moments. But wait a minute. How does all of this fit with what we've seen already in the book of 1 John? You see, look above in the text, several phrases. If if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. He says, if we confess our sins, talking to children of God, then he is faithful and just to forgive us. He says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Well, this seems like double talk, doesn't it? Like John is speaking out of both sides of his mouth. He's telling me in one part, well, I have to keep the commandments of God. But then he's telling me, and by the way, when you fail and you will fail, here's what you need to do in that moment. So how do we reconcile all that we see here? If you remember back to the first week in our series, I said that John's writing drives me crazy because he starts to develop a theme and then he, he drops it and then he picks it up later. It's kindly described as symphonic. So what he does is he talks in one part and then he develops it later down the road. And that's what he does with this kind of concept here. So please turn to 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. This is another angle. This is another rendering, another variation. It is a recapitulation of John coming back to this topic. Look at verse four. We'll read through 10. He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John in this passage brings some more clarity. You may be sitting there thinking, that didn't help at all. Uh, By God's grace, I think we might get some more clarity by the end of our time together. Uh, He begins by saying, 
everyone who makes a practice of sinning. So the question is, what does it mean to make a practice of sinning? Well, think about this. How do we make a practice of any other activity in our life? See, practice is an important part of being successful at any sort of activity that we do. What we do when we practice an activity is we deliberately set our minds, our hearts, and our bodies so that we might get better and grow in our ability to do that activity. We set our hearts, our minds, and our bodies in a particular direction so that we might see progress. My making a practice of preaching enables me to grow in my ability to serve the Lord and to serve his church. And so I set my heart on becoming a better proclaimer of truth. For me, it's a value, it's a desire, it's something that I desperately want so that God might be glorified and his church might be encouraged. And so what I do is I set my body to go about practicing it. I set aside time in my schedule so that I might continue to grow in this ability and I purposefully engage every portion of my being so that I can increase in ability. This is the same for all of you and the various things that you're involved in. You strive after, you work hard, you continue to practice, practice, practice so that you might grow and increase. So this is what it means for us to make a practice of something. So when making a practice of sinning, what we're saying is I desire the end goal of sin. And the end goal of sin is always self. Be it pleasure, be it safety, be it security, be it fame or fortune or whatever else. And so then we set our minds and our bodies and our lives and our schedules and our everything towards achieving that end. My actions, my thoughts, when I make a practice of sinning, I set them in defiance against God's word, against God's ways, and against God's will. I reject God's kingship over my life and I cast him aside and set myself on the throne. I say, though few might ever do it explicitly, God, I hate you. And I hate your commandments and I hate your ways. I like mine better. And I know better. So God, out of the way, out with you, in with me. To make a practice of sinning is to pursue an ongoing pattern of unrepentant sin. Is making a practice of sin then the same thing as battling against sin? Is it the same thing for someone to struggle and to fight and to wage war against sin and for someone to make a practice of sin? No, no, no. Look at your neighbor and say, it's not the same thing. It is not the same thing. When you turn from sin and when you trust in Jesus, you do not become instantly perfect. However, you begin by God's grace to make war on sin. Before Christ, you were content in your sin. You made a practice of sinning. You put sin as the end goal and self on the throne, but now in Christ, you no longer make that same practice. So Christian, can I ask this morning, are you actively waging war against sin? Are you actively struggling against the darkness within your soul? Are you, by God's grace, fighting a battle against your sinful tendencies, leanings, and desires? Katie and I were talking about this together this week, and she had read a devotional that I found extremely helpful from her She Reads Truth study Bible. This is what Rachel Meyer said. This is so good. 
She says, as long as we are on earth, there will always be darkness to drive out. And as long as we have breath in our lungs, the process of sanctification will be present. If we are not actively struggling with darkness, it isn't because there's no darkness in our lives. It's because that darkness has become comfortable. A massive part of the Christian life is constantly battling sin. It is constantly fighting back the darkness. And here's the thing. As we combat darkness and we draw closer and closer to the light, more and more darkness is exposed. As we mature in Christ, we actually increase in the awareness of our sinfulness. And as we increase in seeing our sin as greater and greater, the truths and the preciousness and the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes that much more precious to us. So Christian, wage war against darkness and know that you won't rid yourself of it here, but there is coming a day. 1 John 3, 5 through 6, he continues. You know that he, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one keeps on sinning. Who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Verse 5, John tells us, look, Jesus Christ came to deal with sin. And if this is one of the very reasons for which Jesus Christ came, then it would be impossible for anyone who abides in Christ to remain indifferent to sin. It's as if he's saying, look, uh, if you're serious about battling sin, if you're not serious about battling sin in your life, then there is simply no way that you can have a relationship with God. If you have a real, meaningful relationship with God, and if you know his commandments, and you know how breaking those commandments grieves his heart deeply, then you simply cannot know God and love God if you do not seek by God's grace to obey God. You would not have a settled and habitual disposition of heart that is contra God. In verse 6, he simply says, no one who keeps on sinning in this way that we've been discussing has either seen him or known him. So to see God in the person of Jesus Christ is to know God, and to know God is to love God, and to love God is to be changed by God, and part of being changed by God is increasing in righteousness and battling of sinfulness. Which brings us to this morning's segment of Simple Truths with John. Verses seven and eight. Look with me, please. He says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. John gets black and white here. He begins by grabbing our attention again and saying, little children, listen, listen, listen. I need you to hear me. He says, let me make this really simple because I don't want you to be deceived. You see, it's likely at this time that there were deceivers that were going about saying, hey, look, uh, you can come to Jesus, but then you can just keep living life however you were living it before. All you have to do, in fact, is walk down an aisle, fill out a card, pray a prayer, and then go about living your life. It's kind of like saying, look, I love sinning, God loves forgiving, so it's a great relationship. But this is exactly what Paul writes against in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. He says, should I keep sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. God forbid. 
For how can we who have died to sin still live in it? We saw this last week in 1 John 1, 5 and 2, 1, that Jesus was sinless. And just above in 3, 5, John reiterates it. He had no sin. Jesus is righteous. And anyone who practices righteousness is righteous like Jesus. If, on the other hand, you make a practice of sinning, well, then John says you're of the devil. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So in John's simple truths for us this morning, he lays out two choices. You can either be a child of God or you can be a child of the devil. You can either be a child of God, thus striving by God's grace to live without sin, or you can be a child of the devil entirely indifferent to your sin. And then I love the way that he concludes verse eight. Look at this. He ends by saying, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus Christ came to vanquish, to obliterate, to conquer, to do away with forever the works of the devil. The devil has been sinning from the beginning and he leads his children to practice sin, but the son of God appeared to destroy his works and it wasn't hard for him. How has Jesus destroyed the works of the devil? Verse five, we see it. He takes away sin. This is what we talked about last week. He removes the penalty of sin. He becomes the embodiment of sin and satisfies the whole wrath of God, thus removing it from the account of those who embrace him by faith. But then verse nine goes on to tell us that he's also done more to defeat the works of the devil. Verse nine begins by saying, no one born of God. You see, Jesus makes this new birth possible. When Jesus offers us salvation, he doesn't invite us to sign up for a rehabilitation program. He doesn't say, here's how we're going to reform. He says, no, 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 you have to be reborn. Nothing short of that will do. John 1, 12 through 13 says this, but all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. He replaces our dead, stony hearts, which were unable to love and treasure and desire the things of God, and in its place he puts a a heart of flesh that is able to love and treasure and desire and long for the things of God. He doesn't just deliver us from the penalty of sin, but he delivers us from the power of sin. Before sin was my master and I had no choice but to submit to my master. But now in Christ I have a new master and it is Christ's righteousness. I no longer have to sin, praise God. I no longer have to sin. And then the kicker in verse nine. He says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning because of this. For God's seed abides in him. That in the very moment that I turn from my sin and I trust in Jesus, I am given a new heart. And this new heart that is alive to the things of God is the only residence that is proper for the Holy Spirit of God to come and take up residence. This is what it means for God's seed to abide in us. It is nothing less than the indwelling presence of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God. So if you are born of God, then the Holy Spirit of God has taken up residence in your heart. 
So you do not practice righteousness, Christian, because you're great. You do not practice righteousness because you can muster up enough strength to do it on your own. You practice righteousness because you have a new heart. You practice righteousness because in that new heart lives the Holy Spirit of God, and he enables you to practice righteousness. I keep God's commandments because I am filled with the Holy Spirit. You, Christian, brother or sister in Christ, keep God's commandments because the Holy Spirit has come and filled your soul. Brothers and sisters, God did not just save us to take us to heaven. He saved us to make us more like Jesus and to ensure that that happens so that he might receive glory. He has freed us from the penalty of sin in Christ and from the power of sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to destroy the works of the devil, he did so by dealing a one-two punch to the prince of darkness. In the resurrection of Christ, freedom from the penalty, and now in the indwelling presence of the Spirit, freedom from the power. So that now the very same power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead and enables me to have forgiveness of sins from God is the same power that I can tap into to resist sin in the first place. But, as we've said many times and should say often and often again, when we do come to Christ, we don't become instantly perfect, but we do begin by God's grace and in dependence on the Holy Spirit to wage war against this sin. All of God's children are becoming more like Jesus, but it doesn't happen all at once. In fact, we're all growing in different places and at different rates. But the point is, what is the trajectory? That over time, as I look at the course of my life, am I beginning to look more and more like Jesus? Am I moving more and more towards his holiness? It's not a white-knuckling my way through life. It's not a mustering up enough obedience within my own willpower to please God enough so that he'll accept me as his own. Instead, it's believing that I'm already accepted in God. And that now, in dependence upon his spirit at work in me, I can increasingly walk in obedience. So in answering the question this morning, as we ask ourselves, do I really have relationship with God? This is the first sign that John gives us. The first question that I ask myself as I'm testing my spiritual pulse is, do I practice righteousness? Do I keep the commandments of God? Do I have a real and genuine desire to obey God and to walk according to his ways? Am I striving by God's grace to make war against my sin? Am I depending on the power of the Holy Spirit to bring a radical change about my life whereby I forsake sin and I strive for holiness and I cling to righteousness? And then the question, what do I do when I fail to keep God's commandments? Do I just simply carry on without batting an eye and not really caring much? Do I feel a worldly kind of sorrow because of the consequences that I now have to endure? Or is there a real godly sorrow that produces genuine repentance? Do we go off and hide from God for a certain time so that we can clean ourselves up and make ourselves presentable and after I've been good for a couple days, then I can go back to God? Or in the moment of sin, do I cast myself upon the gospel? And do I trust and rest in knowing that God's grace is sufficient for me? 
Do I run to him while I'm still covered in my filth and my guilt and my shame? And do I trust in Jesus' sinless sacrifice alone to cleanse me from my unrighteousness? Do I trust in the perfect righteousness of Jesus? And do I, by the power of the Spirit, practice righteousness? This is the first piece of substantiating evidence that I, that you, do in fact have relationship with God. And this enables us to keep his commandments. Well, as we began our time together this morning, we started by doing three spiritual, or three tests to see whether or not we actually have physical life in this room. But here's the thing, we don't often run those tests on ourselves. It's usually a group of individuals that are surrounding us, a team of doctors or whatever, that come and they check whether or not these things are actually happening. Uh, This is what Katie and I have done with our kids all growing up. Uh, We would go in at night, we still go in every night to see them sleeping, and when they were younger, we would watch, and it's like, are they still breathing right now? And I see the sheets kind of moving up and down slowly. Uh, Sometimes we put our hand like under their nose to see if we felt their breath coming out. And then when we get like really freaked out, it's like, hey, babe, 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 come in in here. Uh, Is he alive? Or do we need to, you know? Uh, But what we would do is we would be running these tests and we'd be working together as a team to discern whether or not our children were alive. Uh, These are heavy questions. Discerning spiritual life in our souls And it is an immense amount of weight for any one individual to consider on their own. So running these tests to determine our spiritual condition is not something we should do on our own. Mike McKinley wrote a book called Am I Really a Christian? He writes this, I cannot stress enough that this important process of examination can only properly be done in the context of a local church. You need other Christians who are committed to your spiritual well-being. They are the ones that will be able to get to know you and identify the fruit of the new birth in your life. We are not good judges of our own hearts. Some people are entirely too easy on themselves. They imagine that they give evidence of genuine regret and repentance for their sin, when in reality there is none. Others, with a tender conscience, are far too hard on themselves. They take every weakness and failure as evidence that they are hypocrites and false Christians. Being involved in the local church is immensely helpful for both kinds of people. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need each other. And we need each other to be honest with one another. You see, discerning my relationship with Jesus is not something that I go off into a dark corner of the world all by myself, me and Jesus, trying to figure out. Discerning my relationship with Jesus is a community project. It is in the context of a community of believers that are working together and they're pointing out when we display evidences of grace. And they're also rebuking us when we begin to wander. And so as we look at these tests here today and over our next couple weeks, we must do so in community as brothers and sisters in Christ, pointing out where we see the Holy Spirit of God living and active and calling one another back to the will, to the ways, and the commandments of God. And so John concludes our passage in our morning with verse 10, and this propels us into next week. So by this it is evident who are the children of God, who are born of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So Father, This morning we rejoice again in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We praise you 
for the grace that you have given us here in your word, that you want us to know whether or not we are spiritually alive and you have given to us tests, observable indicators to demonstrate whether or not we are your children. And oh God, I praise you that you do not call us to discern this on our own. Father, as I look around at this room and see brothers and sisters sitting shoulder to shoulder, I rejoice in your wisdom in calling us together to be able to discern these most important, weighty, and eternal questions. And Father, I pray for us that as we consider these questions, that it would not produce in us a fear of, I must try harder and work more and do better. But God, it would drive us to cast ourselves upon you and that it would cause us, Holy Spirit, to depend on you to make this fruit, to make these observable indicators clear and on display in our lives. Father, that we would be a people, a church filled with your children who are striving towards holiness in your power and for your glory. And oh, Father God, we know that we cannot do it on our own and that we are in desperate, desperate need of your grace. And so we do, Father. We cast ourselves upon your grace and ask for more. In Christ's name.